Good morning. Everybody doing all right? You sure? <laughs> we're glad that you're here. Um, we're going to be continuing this morning, series that we ba- began a while back in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible and want to grab it, that's where we'll be. We'll be towards the end of the, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, just to set a little context for you, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, there was sort of a transition, and we reflected that uh, as we transitioned to, from one sort of mini-series called Glory Revealed to a new one called Glory Displayed as Jesus has gone more public with his ministry. Um, and we saw at the beginning of chapter 6 another point of transition. Jesus um, performed a, a, a magnificent miracle after he was finished teaching a crowd of people of 5,000 men and their families. He provided for them a miraculous meal, taking just a few loaves of bread and a few fish and multiplying them so, all the, so that all were fed. And, and that miraculous miracle, is that, that's redundant, that magnificent miracle had the effect of, of causing in these people a desire to have this man become their leader. In fact, it says in the text that they were trying to figure out a way to make Jesus their king. And Jesus perceiving this and knowing that that wasn't what was, that was, that might have been their plan, but it wasn't his plan. He sends his disciples off across the lake and he retires by himself. And as the disciples are making their way across the Sea of Galilee in a boat, they encounter a storm and Jesus walks out to them. Another magnificent miracle calms the storm miraculously moves the boat from the center of the lake all the way to the shore. That's always been an intriguing miracle to me that just instantly they moved from the, from the lake to the, to the seashore. And then uh, as he had relocated, there was this crowd of people that he had ministered to, this crowd of people that he had fed, and they started looking for him. <laughs> they found a way to get back around the lake to where he was, and then he encounters them again, and he is then in Capernaum. And as he encounters some of this crowd, I don't know if it's all 5,000 men and their families, but it was certainly some of them that made their way around, and they're still trying to get something from Jesus. And he begins, and we began last week considering what is known as uh, the bread of life discourse. And we'll see, we've already seen that there were some things that Jesus had to say that were difficult for these people to understand, and we're going to see that same thing as we look at our text this week. Um, there are a couple of themes I want to point out. Uh, there, 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 are a couple, there are two, uh, if you will, intersecting lines. There's a line of Jesus um, declining popularity, and there's a line of increasing hostility toward Jesus. I mean, they're related. As he became, as, as the hostility grew, his popularity began to wane. In fact, we see, we'll see this week a couple of evidences of, of that. We're going to see that the people began to grumble as they're hearing Jesus teach. And then as he teaches some more, they begin to dispute among one another. Um, And then, just I don't want to spoil for next week, but by the time we get into the end of the discourse and the transition to the end of the chapter, we're going to see that Jesus is almost entirely abandoned. That he's taken from this 5,000 men and their families, he remains with only a few, just a handful, really, really just 11 people remain of of those who are described as as the, the Jesus that that John calls his Jesus disciples and yet almost all of them leave almost all of them turn and walk away 
And Jesus is just left with a few. It, it may make you wonder, it makes me wonder, from a human sense, what's going on here? You know, why is Jesus' popularity declining so quickly? Think about it. This is in the space of less than 24 hours, where he's gone from this, this great popularity where the people want to make him king to the point where just a few stay and the rest of them go. And what's, what's the explanation for that? What are the implications of that from a human standpoint? seems to me that that's a great failure. You know, he had everything going for him. He had the entire crowd enthused for him. He had, he, had, he had a multitude that wanted to follow him. And then by the end of this one discourse, he's left with just a handful. From a human sense, a failure. And yet, there's, a, there's another theme. Let me just give you a few selections. This is um, verse 29 of chapter 6. Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And from our passage this morning, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This, uh, from the end of this, our passage this morning, verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And this from next week's passage, verse 63, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Do you see the theme that's running through what appears to be a human failure? It's the hand of God moving. You see, in direct contradiction to what it appears to be, the hand of God is moving. God is in control of everything that is going on here in this situation that we're reading about. And I would submit to you that God is in control of everything in your life. That everything that is happening in your life, God is in control. Most of my musical references come from the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's a Twyla Paris song, anybody, Twyla? God is in control. We believe that his people have not been forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or behind him. We know God is in control. Yeah, I think that's the message. And then there's this. I, wasn't, I didn't have this plan because I, this came across my news feed um, yesterday evening, um, but I, I wanted to share it with you. It's from an article called um, This Present Global Darkness. It's from Christianity Today, written by a, a professor and scholar named Craig Kenner. Craig Keener, I'm sorry. 
Um, he's writing in response to what's going on in the world now, to the turmoil that's going on in the world, and specifically the, the turmoil in, uh, in Ukraine. He says this, the final outcome is already decided, but in the meantime, earthly battles continue and individual lives remain in the balance. The prayers of a righteous person count more before God than the prayers of arrogant powers in heaven or on earth. If I, I confess that, were it not for my faith in Scripture, these claims would sound pretty hollow to me in times of mass suffering. But because I do believe the Bible, I take courage for the future. In the current war in Ukraine and other conflicts around the world, we do not yet see all of Jesus' enemies visibly under his feet and casualties remain high, but Jesus' exaltation over angels and authorities and powers has already decided the final outcome of the cosmic war of the ages. We can rest in that truth. I'm almost inclined to say amen and, and call for a benediction, but I have 19 verses that I need to, uh, that I need to cover. So um, let me read those for us. And then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. If you would, if you're able, would you please stand in honor, to honor God's word? We're beginning in verse 41 of John chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said those things, said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Just a brief prayer. Father, pray that what we know not, you will, you will teach us. What we have not, you will, you will give us. And what we are not, you will make us. 
for the sake of your son Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right. So we're, uh, we're picking up the story, as I said, midway through this discourse, with the Bread of Life discourse, picking up in verse 41. Um, the first thing I noted, uh, verse 41 says, so the, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And uh, just a couple of things I want to note about that particular statement. The first thing I noticed is that it appears that there's been a shift in our audience we go back to the beginning of the discourse, Jesus was addressing what John calls the crowd. And again, most of that crowd was the people that came around the Sea of Galilee from, from the eastern side now to the western side and are in Capernaum. As we're told at the end of, the, at the end of this passage in verse 59, Jesus is teaching. He's actually in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I think that gives us a little bit of a clue about what's happening here. Typically in John's gospel, when he mentions the Jews or refers to the Jews, he's talking not about the people in general, but he's talking about Jewish leaders. He's talking about those who are in authority, who increasingly are coming up against Jesus or coming into conflict with Jesus. And, and John makes that shift here. He doesn't say the crowd grumbled. He says the Jews grumbled. It seems likely to me that at this point we have sort of a mixed audience, it's both people from the crowd that came around the sea and wanted to get more from Jesus, as he challenged them in our passage last week. They really just wanted to see more miracles. They really just wanted to get more bread, and he's addressing that in his, in his discourse. But I think it's also likely that included in this crowd now are people that were from Capernaum, perhaps even the leadership in the synagogue, because as we're told again at the end of the passage in verse 59, Jesus is now in the synagogue teaching. So I think that's the audience that we're seeing here, both the, the Jewish leaders who are in opposition to him, we've seen that throughout John's gospel so far, but also people that are there in the synagogue, the leadership perhaps, uh, a mixed crowd, if you will. It says that these Jews grumbled. They were grumbling about what Jesus had said. We've talked, uh, uh, others have talked uh, as we've gone through this chapter about the, the, the parallels between what we see here and the, and the account of the Exodus. And we think about how the, the, the Jewish people, the, 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 the people that Moses led out of Egypt, began almost immediately to grumble. I think we see that parallel here as well in what we're seeing uh, in, uh, in John's gospel. These Jews are, are grumbling, and the reason they're grumbling is because of what Jesus said. He said, we are grumbling, we're, we're, we're complaining because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Now, it, it's interesting to me, Jesus didn't actually say exactly those words. They're kind of taking a composite of what Jesus had said. I mean, I guess good for them. They've been listening, and they put a couple of things together. He said back, he said in verse 35 that he was the bread, and then he said in verse 38 that he came down from heaven. They took those two things and put them together and said, wait, wait a second. We know this guy. This is, this is Jesus. He, he lives here. And we, we know his mom and dad. We know, we know Joseph. And so how is it that he's saying he is... Uh, the bread that has come down from heaven, that, that, that didn't make sense to them. I mean, obviously, for us, for us, from our perspective, we know they're making a mistaken assumption about Jesus and his origins. You see, they think they know his father. It's one of the ironies here. They think they know his father, but they don't know his father at all. They think they know that Joseph, who was his earthly father, his, his surrogate father, if you will, 
his, uh, his adoptive father, they know him and they've made the assumption that if, if in fact Jesus has earthly origins, that, that he couldn't possibly say he came down from heaven. It makes sense. I think if we were in their shoes, we might say something similar. You know, if I were to stand here and tell you that I came down from heaven, you might have questions about that, and you don't even know my earthly father. So, um, I, I, I'm not, I feel uncomfortable putting a lot of, um, looking at them negatively, because if I put myself in their shoes, I might react in the same way. But Jesus wants to teach them. He wants to tell them something about who he is and, and uh, perhaps clear up this mistaken assumption about his origin. And again, it's interesting to me that Jesus' response is not, he's not, he doesn't respond immediately and directly to their, to their issue, to what it is they're grumbling about. He says, he says this, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And you might think at that point, he'd say, don't grumble among yourselves. Let me tell you about where I came from. But he doesn't say that. He says this in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus doesn't, doesn't take the bait and begin to address what is, I think, for him, a peripheral issue. The fact that he came down from heaven is not the main thing that he wanted to say. In fact, I think he's refocusing on a truth that he's already told them. If you look back up to verse 37, it's on the same page for me. Remember, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then in verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that all, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, Jesus' main point, the point he wants them to get, is not so much about his origins. It's about God. And what God is doing, and God's sovereign action in our salvation. That's the first part of what we're seeing here. We're, we're seeing in this section, at least the, the title that I put over this, the umbrella that I put over this section, is that Jesus is the bread that saves, and Jesus is the bread that sustains. So he wants to begin telling them about what it means to be saved. In fact, as I said, he's already told them back in verse 37, that those who are saved are the ones that the Father gives to him. And in verse 39, he's not, I'm not going to lose any of those that God, that the Father gives to me. What we're seeing here is simply uh, the, the reality of God's sovereign action in our salvation, that it's, that it's God's act, not a human act. Now, if we've been paying attention through our as our, you know, we've made our journey through John's gospel, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised by this. John and Jesus have been telling, this all, telling us these things all along. Even back in chapter 1 in the prologue, John wrote this. This is in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that being the word, Jesus, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's sovereign action in our salvation, in our, in our believing, in our 
coming to faith. And then when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus and telling Nicodemus that he, that he, he must be born again, he said this in verse 8. He says that the wind, this was Jesus speaking, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the, it's the Spirit moving that brings about our salvation. It's the Spirit moving that brings us to, to faith. And then next week we'll hear this verse, Jesus reiterating one more time. He says this in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So again, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not of our own volition that we come. It's, it's the drawing of the Father that brings us to him. That, I think what Jesus is talking about here is what is commonly known as, as irresistible grace, or perhaps uh, sovereign grace, or, 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 or perhaps effectual grace. There's a, an article, um, actually I think this is from a sermon that um, John Piper preached. It was actually a, a sermon that he preached on the, the eighth verse of chapter three that I read just a minute ago. Uh, the sermon was called The Free Will of the Wind, and Piper said this, what verse 8 is teaching is this, we don't cause the Spirit to bring about the new birth any more than we make the wind blow. Or to be more specific, the decisive act of will in the new birth is not ours. The Spirit's will is decisive. To be sure, our will moves in the moment of the new birth, change happens in us, there are perceptible effects of the wind, you hear its sound. The main effect of the wind, the Spirit, is that we are made alive spiritually, born again, and now our wills move. They move to receive Christ and believe on Christ. But our wills move because the wind is blowing, not the other way around. We don't move first. Our wills are awakened and move toward Christ because the Spirit blows where He wills and gives life to whom He wills. This is what we mean when we use terms like sovereign grace or irresistible grace. We mean that the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit, and therefore He is omnipotent and sovereign, and therefore He is irresistible and infallibly effective in His regenerating work, which doesn't mean that we don't resist Him. We do. The Bible is plain about that. And then he cites Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, at the end of his great sermon, rebukes the, the Jewish leaders for their resistance of the Holy Spirit. I would also parenthetically, um, I'm guessing that if I were to ask many of you about your experience in your faith journey and how you came to Christ, you might tell me about some times of resistance as well. Um, but anyway, back to Piper. Uh, it says, um, yeah, uh, doesn't mean we don't resist him. We do. The Bible is plain about that. What the sovereignty of grace and the sovereignty of the Spirit mean is that when God chooses, He can overcome the rebellion and resistance of our wills. He can make Christ look so compelling that our resistance is broken and we freely come to Him and receive Him and believe Him. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. When He says that no one comes to the Father unless 
No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. He's talking about that effectual grace, that irresistible grace, the, the decisive grace that draws, that breaks down all of our resistance, that takes us from death to life, that takes us from blindness to seeing. That's what Jesus is speaking of. And he also repeats this promise that he's, that he's promised before, that there is future resurrection coming for those who believe. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he gives us a basis for this. Look at verse 45. He says, as it is, uh, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has, learned, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That gives us a little glimpse into how it is that one of the ways that God draws. It's, it's, through, it's through his teaching of us. I think that primarily comes through, through this book that we're holding in our hands. But there's, but there's more to it than that. He says that it's written in the prophets. Um, most commentators and scholars think that he's referring to when, he's, when he quotes, um, and, they all, and, they all, and they will all be taught by God, that he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 54. Um, this is what it says. I'm gonna, it's verse 13 where the quote comes from, but uh, I think verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 54 is also relevant. It begins this way. For the mountains made apart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And then verse 13, all your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So that may be one of the references that Jesus is making here, but he doesn't say that, uh, that it's written in the, by a prophet. He says it's the prophet's. So I think it's possible that Jesus has something else in mind. I, I, this is um, uh, just admittedly a little bit of guesswork now because he doesn't tell us directly. I think he might have this in mind as well because this is what it says in the, uh, what the prophet Jeremiah wrote, um, chapter 31. Wrote this starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then jumping down to verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a, a new covenant promise that the teaching that we receive from God through His Word is also somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, not only written on the page, but it's written, it's written in our hearts. I think, I think that's some of what Jesus has in mind here when He says that all will be taught by the Father. It's not just teaching that comes by, by human means. It's teaching that comes miraculously through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think he's the one that mediates that, that writing on our hearts. As he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father 
comes to me. I don't know about you, that's a, to me that's just a, an amazing, miraculous statement. The idea that, that we as, as human beings, as finite human beings, can receive instruction directly from Him, and that somehow His words, His law is written on our hearts as part of that new covenant promise. It's an amazing thing, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says that they will all be taught by God, and everyone who is taught in that way comes to me. And again, what he's doing here is, is explaining how the drawing of the Father to him takes place. See it. He says that, that has that phrase, comes to me, both in verse 44 and in verse 45. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and those who learn and who have heard and learned from the Father come to me. So it's the drawing is done through this teaching, through the learning that we receive from the Father himself. And then finally, uh, well, not finally. So that's the, uh, the salvation that comes through God's sovereign action. And then he goes on. This is um, in verse 47. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So, uh, what we're going to see here is that what Jesus is saying is that not only are we saved through the sovereign work of God, but we're saved through His substitutionary sacrifice. He says that whoever believes, whoever, whoever believes has eternal life. If we compare that to a parallel in verse 40, in verse 40 He says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. That, I think that gives us some illumination. Jesus in verse 47 just says, whoever believes. Well, believes in what? Well, clearly it means whoever believes in, in Him. I think what we're seeing here in verse 47 is, is really a, a very simple, very succinct statement regarding the way we're saved. We believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. We come to faith and the faith ensures our eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. He says that He is the bread of life. Again, a reiteration of what He said earlier, a restatement of what He said a, a couple of times already, uh, first in verse 35. And then He says this at the beginning of verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven, which is uh, if you think about it, just a, re a reiteration of the claim that caused their grumbling in the first place. He's not shying away from what they were grumbling about. He's saying, yes, you're right. If you're, if you're unsure about, what that, what, about my statement and whether I was actually saying that, I want to just confirm, yes, I was saying that I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. And then sort of in the center of verse 51, he says this, um, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Notice that there's a, a parallel there to verse 47, um, that very simple statement. Whoever believes has eternal life. And then he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I think there's some correspondence here, some, some parallelism. 
uh, in verse 47, he says, whoever believes, in verse 51 in the center, 51b, if you will, says that whoever eats of this bread. So there's a correspondence between believing and, and eating. I think we're going to see more of that as we move forward. There's that correspondence that whoever believes, whoever believes will live forever. Whoever eats of the bread has eternal life. There's this correspondence here. And then he says this at the end of verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's where we see the point. That's, that's, that, that brings us to the point that I'm trying to make. What Jesus is saying here is that he is going to be the sacrifice. That his flesh, the giving of his flesh, the giving of his body is what is going to bring about salvation. He said something similar in verse 33. He said, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Jesus gives his life to the world, but here it says that he gives his life for the world. Or the, the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. I think he's simply talking about the cross. This is a... This is a a pointer forward to what is going to happen. Jesus is saying that, that my flesh, as I come as the living bread, my flesh is going to be given as a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, the world can have, will have, will be given life. Jesus gives his flesh, and he gives his body for the salvation of the world. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have life, but have life everlasting. So the bread comes, the bread that comes saves, but the bread that comes from heaven also, also sustains. And that's where the people get a little bit crosswise with Jesus. Um, they were puzzled. And grumbled about this idea that he had non-human origins, that somehow he came down from heaven. But this whole idea of eating flesh really throws him for a loop. Again, perhaps understandably so. And again, i got to give him credit because they're, 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 making a, they're making an inference here. Jesus says, the, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they, and they remember that he said something earlier about eating the bread. So they say, wait a second. I think what this man is saying to us is that in order to be saved, that we have to somehow eat his flesh, and that just doesn't make any sense to us at all. And again, I, I can kind of put myself in their shoes and say, yeah, that doesn't seem to make much sense. But on the other hand, I think they, perhaps they may have heard enough where they, that they might understand what he's saying. This is, a, this is a common thing in John's gospel. We've seen it over and over and over again where people misunderstand what Jesus says because what he has to say is not so much physical, not so much literal, but more, more, more figurative, more, more spiritual in, in meaning. And we've seen it all the way along. As early back as, as back in chapter 2 when, when they ask him for a sign and he says, well, in, I'll t I'm going to tear this temple down in three days. Uh, you tear down, tear down the temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the physical temple when he was talking about the temple of his body. 
Or when he talks to Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, wait a second, what do you, what do you mean? I have to somehow re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? That doesn't make any sense. Or when he sat by a well with a woman and said, I have this living water. <laughs> if you have this water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to well up within you to life. And then she says, I need some of that water. I'm really tired of coming to this well to draw water. Can you give me some of this water? We saw it in this chapter when he said, I'm, I'm the bread, and they said, that sounds like some great bread. Can we get more of that bread? It's, it's pretty common that there are these misunderstandings when Jesus speaks spiritually, that they, they don't understand what he's saying. I think if they had thought about it a little more deeply, they might have come to a different conclusion. You see, I've, I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed too, that there are some you might call them synonyms, you might call them more interchangeable terms that Jesus is using in this discourse. He says back in verse 35 that anyone who comes to me or anyone who, who believes, he talks about looking on the Son, looking on the Son in verse 40. But then he also uses these terms of, of eating and drinking and, and feeding on but he uses them interchangeably. He uses them uh, in uh, almost, again, almost as, as synonyms. Again, look at, look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, Jesus speaking, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he's sort of laying the groundwork here. He's saying that you, you, need, to, you need to come to me. You need to believe in me. You need to have faith. I'm the bread. If you come to me, you won't hunger. If you believe in me, you won't thirst. At that point, the, the, the question at least begins to be raised in the minds of the hearers, perhaps. Well, what, is, what am I eating exactly? The, the solution to hunger is to eat, and the solution to thirst is to, is to drink. So I think Jesus is beginning, or at least beginning to lay the, the groundwork for what he's going to say. I mean, the question might be raised in your mind, well, if I'm going to have my hunger satisfied, then what is it exactly that I'm eating? Or if I'm going to have my thirst quenched, what is it exactly that I'm drinking? And then he says this in verse 40, everyone who looks on the sun, again, one of our synonyms for believing, anyone who looks on the sun and believes in him will have eternal life. So he's making, again, that connection between, between seeing and, and believing. And then he says this. This is, um, let me double check, make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah, verse 54. Verse 54 says this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, look again, verse 40. Verse 40 says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Those are near quotes of one another, but there are a couple of terms that are changed. Instead of saying, looks on the Son and believes in Him, in verse 54, Jesus says, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? He's saying that eating is believing. He's saying that, that drinking is believing. It's not a literal eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. He's, he's paralleling the two. To eat his flesh is to believe in him. To, to drink his blood is to believe in him, not literally, but, but figuratively. 
spiritually. It's, uh, it's a spiritual sense in which he's speaking here. Uh, this is helpful to me. Um, it's, pretty, it's a fairly pithy statement, succinct, easy to understand. This is the way Augustine commented on this passage. He said it very simply. He just said, believe, and you have eaten. Believe, and you have eaten. You know, don't overcomplicate it. When Jesus speaks of, of our consuming him, we're not consuming him in a literal sense. We're consuming him in a spiritual sense, and that's, it, it's, it's parallel to, it's analogous to, it's synonymous with, with believing in him. A lot of the, the scholars uh, at this point begin to have some, um, well, different opinions. Uh, I know that might come as a surprise. Different scholars have different opinions on things. Um, the question that they often raise is whether or not Jesus had in mind here something <clears throat> Eucharistic. Yeah, you can use that one with your friends this week. Eucharistic, which simply means something to do with the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Was he, did, did Jesus have that in mind when he was speaking? Because a lot of the imagery here brings that to mind, for, at least for me and probably for you too. When you think about what, what the, Jesus said as recorded by Luke in chapter 22, it says that Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There, there, there are parallels here. There, there are things that for us come to mind. To me, I guess there are a couple of questions to help us decide whether or not that's something that Jesus had in mind here. Um, question number one, what would Jesus have expected his hearers to understand? I think reasonably, he would not have expected them to make that connection. Because they didn't know about it. it hadn't, the Lord's Supper hadn't happened yet. So that wouldn't be a connection that he was expecting them to make. I think a connection he might have been expecting them to make was the connections with what we saw in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and, and these, these new covenant promises. I think it's possible that he expected them to make those connections. I mean, he said, as, as it's written in the prophets, as if you, they should have known. They should have understood. These, these new covenant connections. But the other question is, from our perspective, what is it that John would have expected his readers to understand? Or, or, or perhaps, what is it that the Holy Spirit, as he inspired John to write these words, what would he have expected us to understand? It's interesting to me. Um, John, in his gospel, spends more time telling us what happened in the upper room than any of the, of the other gospel writers. I think it's five chapters that he spends telling us what happened in the upper room. But interestingly, he doesn't tell us anything about the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's almost as if he thought his readers might have already known about that. Maybe they already read Luke or Matthew or Mark, and they didn't need to be told about that. There were a lot of other details that he wanted to fill in. But he didn't think that was something they needed to know. They should have already known it. I think that's, from my perspective, that's, that's what we as readers today, perhaps even the readers, 
the early readers, the first readers, were expected to make those connections. So I guess my, the answer to, my answer to the question, is this somehow related to the Lord's Supper? Is it somehow Eucharistic in nature? Is, well, yes and no. For the first hearers, no, because they would have had no knowledge of it and would, would have no reason to make that connection. But for us, yes. We should see these new covenant promises. We should see in it that what we do here every Sunday in, in taking the bread and, and drinking of the cup has some, some deep spiritual meaning. It's not intended to be something we just do mechanically or by rote. That, it's, that it has spiritual meaning that, is, that, that has meaning for us, not just in our salvation, but in our, in our being sustained. You see, that's what we're saying here, right? Is that Jesus' flesh and his blood sustain us. That's what Jesus says. He says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. It is spiritual food that, that sustains us. He puts it in a negative sense in verse 53, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of the blood, you have no life. On the positive side, my, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And I think what Jesus is addressing here is a deep, deep, God-ordained human need. You see, we all, we all long to be satisfied. We all, we all seek satisfaction in something. Again, uh, Augustine said this in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The scholar and theologian Pascal talks about a God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by him. The psalm writer in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or this, uh, this is from Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and, and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. There are so many illusions, so many, so many connections with what we've been seeing and what Jesus says this morning in what Isaiah wrote. I guess the question for us is, where do, we, uh, where do we seek satisfaction? Where do, we, where do we go for our sustenance and what keeps us sustained? This is uh, Jeremiah's condemnation of his people. Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This, this is, um, this is by C.S. Lewis from a sermon he 
preached called The Weight of Glory. This is one of my, uh, this is one of my favorite Lewis quotes. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But then Jesus goes on and gives us uh, hope. See, we're sustained by His flesh and we're sustained by His blood, but we're also sustained in some amazing, miraculous way by the living Father through, in and through Christ. This is what he says in verses 56 through 58. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him, abides in, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Again, he mentions this idea of feeding and, and drinking. Again, what we've seen, it's analogous to believing, continuing to believe, a sustaining faith. And then he says, what he says in verse 57 to me is one of the most miraculous things in this passage, and I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to end with this. He says, again, verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. We're, um, we're crossing a line here into, uh, into mystery. He says, Jesus says that he lives because of the Father. That somehow Jesus derives his life from the Father. I think that's somewhat something that's meant in this in this word uh, begotten. That some, uh, I was looking back on uh, the, the verses that I know where the word begotten is used in ESV has kind of not used. They're not using that word anymore. I went back to the New King James version. I had to find them there. But yeah, these are these are these are passages that are familiar to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth, or one that's very familiar. God so loved the world that He gave His only, His only begotten Son. There's something in this begetting that, that Jesus is deriving his, his life from and through the Father. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Or this, this is from the Athanasian Creed, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten, the Son is of the Father alone, 
not made nor created, but, but begotten. Now, I, I got to tell you, <laughs> I don't understand exactly how that works. Again, we're in the realm of mystery here. We're talking about the Trinity and how the Trinity functions. And yet, what Jesus is saying to us here is that in the same way that the that the Son derives life from the Father, we can derive life in and through the Son. Let me say that again. <laughs> there, was, there was an amen in there somewhere. Yeah. In the same way, or in a similar way, or some way that's analogous, that we don't quite understand, in the same way that the Son derives His life from the Father, we can derive life through the Son. That our life force, what, what, what gives us life here, and also gives us the promise of eternal life, is, is that this, it's that same life force that flows from Father to Son to us. I said it's the same life force that flows from the Father through the Son to us. I don't know about you, I think that's pretty exciting. That we derive, our, we derive our life, that our sustenance comes by the living Father through the Son. John puts it this way in his first letter. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Yes, whoever feeds on this bread will live. So uh, I want to leave you with a couple of questions, questions for different groups. I guess question number one is, um, are you alive? Are you alive? Has the Father drawn you to Him? Has the Father drawn you to Christ? And if you stopped resisting and come to Him and believed in Him, and, and, and feasted on Him. Are, are, has your most pressing need been met through Christ? Uh, I'm gonna, you're here this morning. The reality of your presence here this morning, if, that, if, that's, if that's you, the reality of your presence this morning, I believe, is evidence that God is drawing you, that the Holy Spirit is blowing, moving in your life, and that his intent, down, intent is to break down whatever resistance you, you still have. And my prayer is that this morning would be the day that you would submit, that you would come to him, that you would believe in him, that you would spiritually eat of his flesh, drink of his blood, consume Jesus in a way that brings saving faith. And for the rest of us, What, what sustains us? What's, what sustains me? What sustains you? Where are you looking for your satisfaction? If you are, if you are eating the flesh of Christ, I, I, I would challenge you to eat more fully. If you are drinking of His blood for, for, for your sustenance, I would, I would challenge you to drink more, more deeply. 
See, I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. Not, not just to come, but to keep coming. Not just to believe, but to keep believing. To keep eating. To keep drinking. To, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face so that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. Jesus, we, we need you. There's so much that we, that we look to, to to satisfy us, and I pray that we would find our satisfaction in you and you alone because that's the only place we can be truly satisfied. It's only in you that we can be sustained. And we thank you for the promises of your word. We, we thank you that you have drawn us to you, that you have, that we have, you would have enabled us to come to Jesus. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has not yet come to him, I pray that they would come to him this morning. Lord, we, uh, pray that your word now has, has gone forth, it will not return void, and that you will do only the things, the things that only you can do by your Spirit in this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.